Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, and if you don't, there's one under the seat for you. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3 today. Romans chapter 3. My name is Nate, if we don't know each other. I would love to meet you um, before the day is over. But we're in this series right now called Good News for All People. And let me tell you why we're doing this series, okay? Um, Sometimes churches can get really focused on things that aren't really all that important in the grand scheme of things. So they can get really concerned about the kind of music that we have or the kind of way things look or the way that we do things. And they can get so focused on doing things that they forget why they're doing them. And this series is a way of helping our church remember why we're doing this whole thing. And so it's called Good News for All People. And the reason that we're doing this whole thing is because we believe that there is good news that is for everyone. And in this series, we're talking about what that news is. So last week, we talked about the bad news. And the bad news is simply this, that that God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. That's the bad news. That God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. And the reason that's bad news is because that's you and me. We are unrighteous. And today, we're talking about the good news. The reason that we need the good news is because of the bad news. The bad news is we deserve God's wrath because we're unrighteous. The good news is this. The good news is that God counts unrighteous people as righteous when they trust in Jesus. God counts unrighteous people as righteous when they trust in Jesus. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, let me tell you why this is so important for us to talk about, okay? Because it's possible for... um, for people who have wandered in this morning to have all kinds of of ways of thinking about God. Um, It's possible that that we maybe came this morning and we think that the way that God is going to be most pleased with us, the way that, that we are going to make ourselves acceptable to God is simply by performing better, by doing better, by figuring out how to clean myself up and be a better husband or be a better dad or be a better mom or make better decisions or stop doing this or start doing this. And if I just get my life together, then God will be pleased with me. God will accept me. Some of us live our lives that way, but that's not the good news. The good news is not that God is waiting on you to clean yourself up so that you can be acceptable to to him. That's not the good news. For others, maybe you've disqualified yourself from being close with God or being active in a church or, or um, being able to make a difference in somebody's life that's positive because you've had a season of wandering. You've had this long period of time where you were doing things that maybe you shouldn't be doing or you were doing things that were just destructive to you and to others. And so maybe you've disqualified yourself from thinking that God could ever be with you, that God could ever love you, or that you could ever make a positive contribution again. And the good news is for you this morning. Maybe you've disqualified other people. Maybe there are people that you know or people that you interact with, and because of how much of a mess that they've made of their life or because of something about them that's different than you, you think that they are disqualified from being loved by God or making a positive difference. Maybe there's somebody that for a long time you've been praying that they would come to know Jesus or you've been praying that they would change, and you've just stopped believing that it was possible because they are far too whatever, to ever be interested in God again. And this message is for you. The good news is for you. 
And maybe, maybe you've been at the church for so long. You've been coming to church for 30 years, 40 years, 60 years maybe. And you've been at the church for so long and you've been doing Christian things for so long that you are, are slowly being lulled into thinking that the reason that God accepts you, the reason that God loves you, the reason that God would let you into a relationship with him is because you are just so religious. You've been at the church forever. And if I were to ask you, you know, well, when did your relationship with God start? Your answer would be, well, I've been coming to church for this long. Well, that's not necessarily the same thing. Or maybe just because you're an American and you've grown up, you know, and you've, you've served and you've, you've done things for the country and that somehow in your heart feels like it validates you in the eyes of God. It makes you acceptable to God. But that's not the good news. And this message is for you this morning if you've ever been tempted to think that. The good news is for everyone. None of those things are good news because none of those things will make you righteous. So we need the real good news. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Two simple questions we're going to try to answer first. What is righteousness? What does that word mean? What is righteousness? And then second, this is the more difficult question, is how can God make us righteous and still be righteous himself? How can God make us righteous and still be righteous himself? So that's where we're going this morning. So first, what is righteousness? Righteousness describes someone's character in relationship with someone else. Righteousness is... um, it's not just being a good person. It's, right, it's acting rightly towards others. It's being in the right with others. So sometimes when we hear the word righteousness, we just think it means to be moral. It means to be good. It means to do the right thing. But righteousness is not something that you can be alone. See, you can be moral and be by yourself. You can't be righteous and be by yourself because righteousness happens in a relationship with people. So righteousness is when you do right to the people that you are around. And so um, let's uh, try to make this uh, practical just for a minute, okay? So let's imagine um, a man, just random man, and he has a lot of different people that he relates to on a daily basis, right? So first, this man, let's say he's a husband and he's a father. So righteousness for him as a husband and a father means what? It means being faithful to his family, It means being kind. It means being helpful. It means providing for the family, right? So for a man to be righteous towards his family, there's some certain behaviors that he needs to do, right? But this man also goes to work every week. What does righteousness look like for him at work? Well, it's not cuddling up to his coworkers at bedtime, right? Why? Because Righteousness is determined by the relationship that you're in. Righteousness always happens in relationship. So what does righteousness look like for him at work? It looks like doing his job responsibly. It looks like if he's the employer, it looks like giving fair wages. It looks like creating a positive work environment, right? 
The man also comes home and he's part of a neighborhood association. What does the neighborhood association, what does righteousness look like in that context? I don't know, it looks like maybe mowing yards for people when they're out of town and getting mail for people when they're out of town and giving them Christmas cookies, you know, during the holidays. I don't know. But the point is that righteousness is determined by the relationship. Does that make sense? So righteousness is, is doing right by someone. Have you heard somebody say that before? You're right by me. It's, it's being in right relationship with somebody, acting rightly towards a relationship. Does that make sense? So what does it mean for us to be righteous towards God? What would it mean for us to be righteous towards God? What would it mean for us to do right by God? And the answer is that we should worship him. We should serve him. We should treat the people that he has made the way that he designed them to be treated with love and respect, right? The problem is, and this is what we talked about last week, that we have not done that. We have not been righteous towards God. We have not done the things that we should do in a relationship with God. We have not worshipped him. Instead, we've worshipped and served things that he has made rather than the creator. And we've not treated the people in our lives that he designed us to treat with love and respect. We've not done that. Maybe even today, we've not done that. We've been short with people. We've been unkind with people. We've had tones that were cutting with people. And none of those things are the way that God intended. That means they're not righteous. They are unrighteous. So what does it mean to be righteous towards God? It means to worship him, serve him, and treat the people that he has created with love and respect as he designed. And none of us have done that. So what does it mean for God to be righteous to us. If righteousness is behaving rightly, acting rightly towards people, then what does it mean for God to be righteous towards us? I think at least two things. First, it means that while we've mistreated him, he continues to treat us rightly. That he continues to do the right thing to us, even as we have not done the right thing to him. He always holds up his end of the bargain. Do you know what we call that? We call that faithfulness. That's what we just sang and celebrated. That he is faithful to us. He does the things that he is supposed to do for us. He is always right by us. He never wrongs us. So that's what it means for God to be righteous. He's faithful to his promises. And for God to be righteous, it means that he also must deal with the seriousness of of unrighteousness. We talked about this last week, and if you missed it, you can go online and listen to it. But we talked about how in order for someone who's in charge, in order for an authority to be a good authority, they need to, they need to judge, condemn, they need to not condone, but condemn things that are wrong, evil, unrighteousness, right? So in order for God to continue to be righteous towards us, what does he need to do? He needs to not condone our sin. He needs to not say, well, all of these things that happen that are bad, they're okay. I'm just not going to get involved. Instead, the right thing to do is for him to get involved. 
And so what does it mean for God to be righteous? It means for him to be faithful to his promises, both to judge sin and to stick with us, to hold up his end of the bargain. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is doing right by somebody, doing right in relationship. We have all not been righteous towards God, but God continues to be righteous towards us. Now, here's what's interesting. Is Paul says that the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is revealed in the good news. Now, think about that for just a minute. The righteousness of God, what is that? It's being right with God, doing right by God, being in a right relationship with God. He says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the good news, in the gospel. Listen to what he says, Romans chapter 1. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That means good news. I am not ashamed of the good news, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So he says the righteousness of God is available in this news. A right standing with God is possible, even though we are unrighteous. And now in Romans chapter 3 this morning, Paul is going to show us how. How is the righteousness of God available to us? So, here's our question. How can God make us righteous and still be righteous himself? How can God make us righteous and still be righteous himself? That's what we're going to talk about. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. First, Paul says that God's righteousness has been made known apart from the law. God's righteousness has been made known apart from the law. Look at what he says. But now, as in something's new here, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is he saying? He's saying now something new has happened. Here's why there is good news. Now something new has happened. God's righteousness is available apart from keeping the law. In other words, you can be in a right standing with God and not have kept the law. And he says, this is what the law and the prophets, meaning the whole Old Testament, this is what the law and the prophets were pointing to, were alluding to, were letting us know about, that a day was coming, that this day, this day that is now here, that this day was coming. So he says, you can be, right, uh, you can be made righteous apart from the law, but the law told you that was going to be the case. It's consistent with the law. So here's, what that, here's why that's important. Um, for Jews in Paul's culture, and this is first century, okay? For Jews in Paul's culture, they had started to believe that because they were the people of God, that, um, and they had received the law from God, that they were better than people who were not Jewish. We call that racism. 
So because of who they were, they believed we are better because of our race than other people. So there was arrogance about being Jewish, and there had also begun to be this belief that because we have the law, we are the ones who can actually, we're the only ones who could be righteous. We're the only ones who could be right with God because we're the only ones who know what God requires of us. So in order to be righteous with God, you've got to do the things God wants, and you can only do that with the law, and only Jews have the law. And so there's this arrogance and this um, performance that starts to creep up. Does that make sense? And so that's the culture that Paul was living in. And the reason that they had that mentality is because the beginning of the Jewish story was this man named Abraham. And Abraham had received these promises from God that he was going to have this great nation and that God was going to use this nation to bless the whole world. And so as people who were part of Abraham's family, as, as this, these Jewish people, they, they believed that. So they believed that promise that God made to Abraham. And so they start to feel this sense of superiority. And then after God made those promises to Abraham, eventually he gave them the law through his prophet Moses. And the law was something that they were supposed to obey so they could be blessed. And so in Paul's world, they have this desire to maintain their Jewishness by keeping the law so that they can continue to be better than others and can continue to be right with God. Does that make sense? The culture that he's in. So when Paul writes this, it's shocking to a typical Jew. Now, Paul says, the righteousness of God is available without the law. You can be in a right standing with God. You can receive his promises and be right with him without the law. But he says, this is what the law has always said would be the case. Because you know the story of Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5 and 6. This is on the screen for you. And he, that's God, brought him, that's Abraham, outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's a promise of God. Look at the stars. You see how many there are? That's how many kids you're going to have. That's how many descendants you're going to have. That's how your offspring's going to be. Verse 6. And he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord. And he, that's God, counted it to him as righteousness. And Paul is going to say in chapter 4 that this is the way it's always been. That it was Abraham's faith in the promises of God that made him right with God. This came before the law. In Genesis chapter 15, that's before the law came and God is already saying, you're right with me. So keeping the law could not be the way that you're made right with God because Abraham was counted right with God before that. And special privilege for receiving the law is not the reason for a right standing with God. Here's what Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and shows you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. Verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. 
that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of, the, of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So even in the law, God is saying, look, It wasn't because of how great you were that I set my love on you. Instead, it was because of how great I am and the fact that I wanted to be faithful to my promises. Do you see that? And then Deuteronomy chapter 9. Do we have Deuteronomy chapter 9? Ready? Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of your wickedness of the, of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of the nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see what he's saying? The reason that God has chosen you is not because of how great you are. It's not because of your righteousness. It's because of his righteousness. And he is going to judge the sin that's in this land and he's going to keep his promises to Abraham. That's the reason he's going to do it. Now, that's a lot of history. But the point is this. From the very beginning, the plan of God has been to make people righteous, not by their obedience, but by their faith. And so here's what he says next. Verse 22, Romans chapter 3. Look at this. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How can we be made righteous? What is the righteousness that is made known? We can be made righteous by trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, do you know why he calls him Jesus Christ? It's not like his last name. It's not like, yeah, you know, just wanted to make sure that you weren't thinking of Jesus, you know, Jones. We're talking about Jesus Christ. No. Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. It's like Dr. Jesus it's like Mr. Allfalter. It's a title. And so he says, Jesus is the Christ. What does the title mean? It means that Jesus is the one that God has promised to send. See, in the law and the prophets, it told about one who would come, who would be a savior, and who would be a king, and who would be a prophet. And Paul's saying he is that one. He is the descendant of Abraham and the descendant of David who will save the world. And so by calling him Jesus Christ, he's reminding the people that Jesus is a picture of God's faithfulness. Because the fact that Jesus is even here is because, Jesus, is because God had promised to send him. And so he says, Here's how the righteousness of God is made known. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or if you're Gentile. 
It doesn't matter if you're American or if you're North Korean. It doesn't matter if you're white or if you're black or if you're brown. The righteousness of God is available to all who believe in Jesus. And he goes on to explain why. He says, for there is no distinction. There's no distinction. Do you know why there's no distinction? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. Now, in our culture, we have different distinctions than they would have had. Um, There are distinctions that we make based on personalities. There are people who get on our nerves that we think that person cannot be loved by God because they are hated by me and God thinks like me, right? But there are no distinctions. We have distinctions that we make based on our interests. You know, I'm into football and you're not, and so eh, I'm not going to ever care about you. Um, We have distinctions that we make based on style. You can just tell like something about people based on the kind of shirt that they wear and the kind of shoes they have. We make distinctions based on the school that you went to. That's like the St. Louis thing. Well, what school did you go to? I don't know. I went to Rossview High School. You ever heard of that? So try putting that in your little thing, you know? Uh, We have distinctions that we make based on geography. Oh, you live in that part of town. Oh, you live there. Oh, you live there. We have distinctions that we make based on wealth or how much money somebody makes. Based on age. Oh, you're just an old timer. Oh, you're just a young, you know. And there's discrimination. There's legitimate discrimination that takes place. Um, There's distinctions that we make based on skin color. And we have ways of thinking about people based on what color they are. We do this with gender. This is how a man is, and this is how a woman is, and everybody just needs to... We do this with nationality. Well, we're Americans. We're God's chosen nation. In the same way that God led the people out of Egypt and took them to the promised land, so he led us out of Europe and brought us to the promised land. And God has blessed us, so we need to bless God, right? And so we look down on people who live in other countries, potentially. We do this politically. Oh, he's just a liberal. Or he supports Trump. We even do this with sin. Well, that person deals with that sin, and that's far worse than the sin that I deal with, and so that person could never be right with God but I can be right with God. God will forgive me, but he wouldn't forgive them because of the distinction in our sin. But Paul says that there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So he's saying that to be right with God, we need help. It it can't come from having the law, from just being the kind of person who inherited things because I'm Jewish or inherited things because I'm American. And it can't be by keeping the law because none of us can keep it. 
So we need help. And we can all be made right by faith. Now, how does that work, though? How does God make people righteous by faith? He explains. Verse 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Now, if you're an underliner, maybe underline that word justified. And are justified by his grace. Do you know what the word justified means? It's literally the same word here. It's just in English we translate it differently. But it's just, it means to make righteous. That's what it means. To make righteous. So... In verse 21, the word righteousness is used. In verse 22, the word righteousness is used. And then in verse 24, the word justified is used. But in the original language, it's just the word righteous. He made righteous. He justified. So all are justified by his grace. Now, to make someone righteous, the word in Paul's day was almost exclusively used in court. So if there was somebody who was brought before the judge and the judge was going to determine if they were going to be condemned or if they were going to be let go. If they were going to be condemned or they were going to be made righteous, justified. The judge had the authority to declare that based on the evidence. So to be condemned is to be declared officially in a court, you're going to the stockyard or whatever. To be justified is you can go free. You are in the right. You are righteous. You and the law, you and the, the court of the land are right with each other. You're on good terms with each other. That's what it means to be justified. Paul says that all can be justified by his grace. That means that God can look at you, even in your sin, and he can say, you're righteous. You are right with me. That's what it means. You're in a right relationship with me. You are good. It's as if you have kept the law. How does that work? It works, he says, by his grace as a gift. In other words, it's free. He doesn't declare you righteous. He doesn't justify you by looking at you and determining how hard did you try. Okay, we know that you didn't keep all the law and we know that you didn't keep all the rules, but how hard did you try to do it? He doesn't look and determine if we are right or wrong. He doesn't look and determine if we are righteous or unrighteous based on how hard we tried. He determines by his grace as a gift. By his grace as a gift. Which means that accepting it is not about getting up the gumption. Instead, it's by looking and receiving, saying yes in faith. So we are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Why can people who are unrighteous be counted righteous? Because of God's grace as a gift. Through what Jesus has done. Through the redemption of Jesus. In other words, the word redemption here is a, is a word that means to pay money to release someone from captivity. That's what it means. To pay money to release someone for, from captivity. So many times in the ancient world, it was used to refer to slaves who there would be um, a wealthy benefactor who would buy them and pay for their freedom so they could go free from slavery. This is exactly what God had done for Israel in the Old Testament. They were slaves in Egypt, and what did God do? He redeemed them. He brought them out. And so he says, that is what Jesus has done. Jesus has redeemed us. Jesus has paid a price to make you free. Free from what? Free from your bondage to unrighteousness because no matter how hard you try, you keep screwing up and you keep being unrighteous and to free you from the price that you needed to pay with God. God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. Jesus has purchased your redemption so that you can go free from God's wrath. So that God's wrath will not come on you, but so that you can experience freedom and joy and peace with God rather than his wrath, rather than his judgment, rather than his condemnation. That's what Jesus has done. Well, okay. But how can God do that and still be righteous himself? If, if God just looks at us all and says, okay, even though you're unrighteous, it's not that big of a deal, you're all just forgiven and you can come to heaven and be in relationship with me and we can all just get over it and we'll just let your sins go. Then how is that any different than the authority who sweeps sin under the rug? The authority who finds out about some kind of abuse and says, we're just, we're going to let that go, we're going to put that under here, we're not going to stand up to it, we're not going to, how is that any different? Because God makes us righteous without condoning sin. And the way that he does it is he pours out his wrath on Jesus in our place. God is not sweeping sin under the rug. Instead, he is bearing the weight of it on the cross. He's not saying, you know what, I know that you've all messed up and you've all treated people poorly and you've all made a mess of the world, but it's not that big of a deal. I'm just going to let you off the hook anyway. No, it's a big deal. And for that reason, Jesus came into the world. Look at what he says in verse 25. Whom, that's Jesus, so we have this redemption that's in Christ Jesus. How does that work out? Well, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Your translation might say, put forward as an atoning sacrifice. 
The word propitiation basically has um, two meanings. The first meaning is that a propitiation is something that appeases someone's anger. That's what a propitiation is. So the first time this word shows up in the scriptures is in Genesis chapter 32. Um, so basically the story is Jacob and Esau, okay? You can wait to put that up. I'll do that in just a second. Um, let me tell the story first because otherwise the verse won't make sense. Um, Jacob and Esau were brothers and Jacob cheated his brother out of his birthright, okay? And so Jacob... Um, was this horrible person, and Esau was a lot stronger than him. And so when Esau, his older brother, found out what his younger brother had done, he was furious. And he threatened that, if you ever show my face again, I'll kill you. And he meant it, because he was a rough guy. And so Jacob runs away from his brother. And then, like, 30 years go by. And he's preparing to go back to this new land, because he was having to leave his other job for some various other scheming that he had done that did not work out in his favor. And so he's having to move. And in order to move, he's going to have to like, the road that he has to walk on goes right by Esau's property, his older brother. And he remembers that the last time I saw my brother, he was furious with me because I had wronged him. And so he's terrified. And so what he does is he takes all of this wealth that he's accumulated and he puts it in this huge caravan that goes ahead of him. And he thinks to himself, maybe if I put all of these gifts ahead of me, that whenever my brother receives the gifts, he won't be angry with me by the time I arrive. And so here's um, Genesis 32, verse 20. And you shall say, moreover, he's telling, so Jacob's telling his servant what to say. Your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him. Now the word appease is the word propitiate. It's the word propitiation. I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Do you see what he's doing? Do you see what a propitiation is? It's a gift that you give someone that appeases their anger. It's a gift that you give someone that makes you acceptable to them. Does that make sense? So in Jacob's case, he was going to give all of these gifts and all of this wealth. In your case, what could you ever give to appease God's wrath? The answer is nothing. So do you know what God has done for you? He has put forward a propitiation. He has put something ahead of you. In the same way that Jacob was going to put this caravan of gifts ahead of him, in front of him, God has put forward a propitiation for you. And do you know what the propitiation is? It is his son, Jesus. God has put Jesus ahead of you so that Jesus can go before you and appease the wrath of God. And the word propitiate is a reference to this thing in the Old Testament called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. The mercy seat is what the priest would shed blood on so that the sins of the people could be removed. And so um, Leviticus chapter 16, this is 
Just one example of this, there are many. Genesis chapter 16, verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with the the blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Now the word mercy seat there is the word propitiation. The propitiation is the, the place where the blood is going to be shed so that the people can be forgiven. And here's the result of that, verse 30. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So Paul, by using this word here, by calling Jesus the propitiation, he's saying he's the one who goes before you, who satisfies, satisfies the wrath, and he is the place. He is the place where a sacrifice is made that can forgive you, that can atone for you. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He's not only the mercy seat, but he is also the blood that is shed. That is what Jesus has done for you. And it is all to be received by faith. This, he goes on, was to show God's righteousness. Do you catch that? Jesus dying on the cross was to show God's righteousness. It was to show that he was acting right by us. It was to show that he was doing what he has promised to do. And what had he promised to do? He had promised, first of all, to condemn sin, to judge sin, to destroy sinners. And whenever you are wronged, you're like, that's such a good thing. But then when you're the, wrong, you're the person who's done the wrong, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But God has promised to condemn sinners. And he has also promised to save us from our sin. And when Jesus goes to the cross, it is to show that God is righteous, that he does keep his end of the bargain. He doesn't sweep our sin under the rug. Instead, he does judge it and pay for it. He does pour out his anger on it. But Jesus takes the anger in our place so that we can be with him. So this was to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time when Jesus died so that he might be just, could be righteous, same word, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness of God is revealed in Jesus. That means that you can see how God has acted rightly towards us and you can be made right with him by trusting in Jesus. So, here's the good news. God counts unrighteous people as righteous when they trust in Jesus. God counts unrighteous people as righteous when they trust in Jesus. And because of the cross, 
he can still be righteous himself as he does it. So what should you do in response to this message? The first thing that you should do is believe it. Believe it. Maybe you've been in this church for 60 years and you remember walking an aisle one day and filling out a box on a card or meeting with a pastor or being baptized. And that is not what saves you. What saves you is belief in Jesus and what he has done on the cross. And apart from trusting in him, you are still condemned. Maybe this is your first time hearing this message. Maybe you thought that the way that God would be pleased with you, that what you had to do to make God like you is to clean up your act, to to read your Bible more, to come to church more often, to be a better man. And God's message to you is that you can be righteous by trusting in Jesus and what he has done for you. You can be on right terms with God. You can be right by God simply by believing in Jesus. So believe. Maybe you've known that for a long, long time, but you are still tempted to drift into trusting in yourself. And what you need to do today is believe. Trust in Jesus and what he has done for you. And then I think the next response is to worship. When it dawns on you, the predicament that you are in because of the bad news of your sin, when that dawns on you, and then it begins to dawn on you what God has done for you in Jesus, it should move your heart to sing And I'm not saying that to guilt you if your heart's not moved. I'm saying that to to make you think, do I really believe this thing? Do I believe it? Today we get to experience something really cool. We get to witness a baptism. Now, the person who's being baptized has been a Christian for a long, long time. Um, And there's probably been, I've never baptized anybody who's studied baptism more than this guy, okay? Um, And so he... uh, Michael will share his story in just a minute. But, um, but we're going to get to see the, a picture of this. And as we watch this baptism, we're not just watching, we're participating. And what we're doing is we are, we are looking at a picture of what God has done for us in Jesus. That as we go under the water, it's a picture of how Jesus was buried for us, how he died for us. For us, And as we come out of the water, it's a picture of how Jesus was raised from the dead. And in the, in the same way that water cleans us physically, so Jesus' death and resurrection can clean us spiritually and make us righteous before him. And as we witness this, as Chris goes under the water, it's a picture of the fact that he trusts Jesus. And as you see him go under the water, renew your trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, God, it is the power of the message preached, not of the preacher, that can save people. And so, God, I ask that right now your work would be done. 
that your spirit would be active. God, that this message would not land on deaf ears and hard hearts. But God, you would open eyes and open ears and make people's hearts beat again. God, we want to see people come to know you. We want to see people in this church and in this community come to know you. And God, we are not building a club here. We are building an outpost of the kingdom here because we believe that your wrath is real and your grace is true in Jesus. And so God, that's what we want to see happen here. We want to see people come to know you. And we ourselves want to know you and your good news more deeply. So God, forgive us of times that we've made it small. Forgive us of times that we've focused on stupid things. And God, remind our hearts of the good news. God, would you make us a church that believes and cherishes the grace and forgiveness that's offered to us in the good news? And would we be a church that takes it to our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members? Would we not be ashamed of the good news because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe? There's no distinction. God, guard us from distinctions. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.